LegalizeFreedom.com Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Listen without limits. Unchain your brain. Change your thinking. Change your life. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm your host, Greg Moffat, and my guest today is John Michael Greer, who joins us to discuss his book, The Ceremony of the Grail, Ancient Mysteries, Gnostic Heresies, and the Lost Rituals of Freemasonry. Topics covered include catastrophism and tales of mass destruction in humanity's distant past, lost civilizations and their technology, the myth of constant progress in civilization, agriculture and the rise and fall of civilization, the mysteries of megaliths and their construction, longevity of Arthurian myths and legends, lessons from grail legends for our present and future. Hello and welcome, John. Thank you so much for joining us once again on LegalizeFreedom.com. Thank you for having me on again. Uh, John, we're, today we're discussing another new book of yours. It's only a few weeks ago that we spoke about uh, previous title. Uh, today it's The Ceremony of the Grail, Ancient Mysteries, Gnostic Heresies, and the Lost Rituals of Freemasonry. Uh, before we jump into that, now I, again, it's not that long since we spoke, however, there will inevitably be people coming to this uh, and encountering your work for the first time. So just uh, get us started with a potted bio. Um, the potted bio is very simple. I um, grew up in, was born and grew up in Western Washington State in the United States, out where it rains all the, or out where it used to rain all the time. Um, started writing about the time I could first clutch a pen, a crayon in my hands. Um, have had an odd life. Um, I spent 12 years as the Grand Arch Druid of an American Druid Order. Um, I've written a lot of books. I currently live in East Providence, Rhode Island and with my wife, Sarah, and um, write more books. Okay, so uh, we mentioned the, the title of the new book, and I've obviously done uh, you know, a recorded introduction here, give listeners a bit of a, uh, an idea of what to expect. Mm -hmm. But this book follows on from to some extent your previous work uh the secret of the temple mm -hmm. That's now, correct. i haven't read that uh, i intend mm -hmm. to however i found that i was able to manage the new book um perfectly mm -hmm. well on its own without having read the previous book but mm -hmm. uh, i don't know if you want to say something about the secret of the temple yeah. as a way to maybe just again you know set mm -hmm. us up for what we're going to be covering Absolutely. Um, you, I, I work, I'm glad that you found um, Ceremony of the Grail readable without having read Secret of the Temple. I, I did my best to, to, to make it something that people could just pick up right off the shelf and, and read without previous exposure. But um, Secret of the Temple, that, that is kind of the, the outgrowth of about a 30-year research project of mine. It, um, if you look into mythology around the world, you find very odd uh, claims that certain kinds of religious structures, certain kinds of temples and so on, built in particular ways, used in particular ways, had a favorable effect on crop fertility. 
Now, the usual assumption is, oh, yeah, it's superstition, right? My thesis was that there's actually a physical effect going on. This is not woo-woo. It's actually um, a, a physical force um, probably connected to microwaves at this point that has measurable effects on, on agricultural fertility. And so what I did in the, in the course of this book was gather the data for that, gather all the evidence, talk about what the, what the traditions pointed to, pointed out the way that, for example, sacred geometry, um, the geometrical patterns that were always used for temples, constructs the inside of a temple as a resonating chamber that has the right proportions to cause a, a buildup of certain kinds of energies and um, how electric currents moving through the soil. And the, it's, it's a very odd mix of, of cutting edge science on the one hand, folklore, religious studies, and trying to, trying to uncover the lost secrets of an archaic technology of fertility that our ancestors or some of our ancestors considered to be very, very important. Um, the Temple of Solomon was built according to that. The Knights Templar were involved in this. The Holy Grail legends had connections to it. Um, and it was probably the, the original secret of the Freemasons, although the Freemasons have lost it. The Freemasons know, I mean, the Freemasons themselves, if you're a Mason, you know the true word is lost. What we have is a substitute word. We are all, in effect, pledged to the quest for the lost word, but it's never been found. My argument is that that lost word was a key to this lost technology. Now, the first thing that struck me uh, when reading the ceremony of the Grail was ideas, a couple of ideas in particular that came up that, you know, that you've basically alluded to that I was very familiar with approaching from different directions with, with other mm -hmm. authors and researchers and ostensibly nothing to do with grail legends or anything like that. And the, the two ideas are as follows. One is this idea of um, a forgotten sort of archaic technology. Some, again, we're going mm -hmm. into prehistory now that, that, that existed some form of high technology in the very distant past that was lost. That's mm -hmm. that's very common, uh, you know, in certain it, certain types mm -hmm. of uh, research oh, yeah. areas. And the other is the idea uh, in the antediluvian period of some kind of devastation, you know, environmental, mm -hmm. ecological, mm -hmm. some kind of. I mean, for example, the the flood myth is universal, mm -hmm. and this idea of destruction in the past is mm -hmm. there as well. So those two things taken together, I mean, you had me from the get go, really, because these are two things that interest <laughs> me greatly. I do think that. I would say that um, the, the history that interests me most is that about which we can say the least, uh, which mm -hmm. is, you know, going mm -hmm. back to go, say 10,000 BC and beyond, you know, mm -hmm. Gobek Gobekli mm -hmm. Tepe and backwards, um, mm -hmm. the aftermath of the last ice age, what indeed exactly. occurred during the ice age, what about pre ice age? And when you mm -hmm. get into that sort of, you know, we can say so little about it. It's basically archeology span at the end of the day, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, the first thing that, that has to be kept in mind is that the Earth is not a stable planet. Um, the, the, the world we live on is a very unstable environment. It has catastrophes. Um, people talk about, wow, the flood legend. There are flood legends all around the world. Well, yes. When the last ice age ended, sea levels rose 300 feet. Um, I mean, you imagine what would happen if sea levels went up 300 feet now. London would be well underwater, for example. Um, but so most of the, you know, everybody who was around during the millennia that followed the end of the last ice age, you know, there were periods where the sea level rise was slow and there were periods where it was very fast. And then there were big tsunamis. Uh, and I mean, I mean, huge beyond anything that we've seen in recorded history. Um, one of them scoured out the English Channel 
in a single horrific thing. You know, there were people living in its path. <laughs> they weren't there afterwards. Doggerland. There was a, you know, a, a large island that is now called Doggerland, the current Dogger Bank, that was inhabited until the tsunami came. So the, 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 there have been floods like this all over the place. The, one of the, the, the main catastrophes that I talk about in Ceremony of the Grail, however, are ecological catastrophes, subsistence crises. It's very, it was very common in the early millennia of agriculture. And for agriculture, for, for, you know, clumsily handled agriculture to deplete soil fertility to the point that all of a sudden you didn't have any food anymore for, you know, centuries. And in, most people died. It was horrific. And this happened not just once. It happened in many parts of the world. It's happened repeatedly in some. Um, <clears throat> this is one of those things. There's, there's been a lot of bad-mouthing of agriculture because of that. But the point is people took up agri- did not take up agriculture just because they got some bright idea up their heads. They took up agriculture because in the crisis at the end of the last ice age, that's the only way they could survive. You know, um, they had these wild swings in climate, ecosystems were collapsing, catastrophic droughts sweeping what used to be relatively well-watered, rain-fed areas. What are you going to do? You find a dryland grass that will grow, and you make and, and that has edible seeds, that becomes the first grain. And so they, it was a survival move, and it had its downsides. So we know that we, we, we have legends of periods of terrible, of terrible privation. We have legends of ecological catastrophe. And one of them, as I talk about in the book, one of them appears to be linked to the legend of the Grail. Well, while taking on board uh, what you said there about the, you know, the nature of the, the sort of uh, the, you know, the environmental devastation that you're talking about, mm-hmm. in general terms, albeit de- dealing with different things, uh, you take the work of earlier someone like, say, um, Emmanuel Velikovsky talking about, mm-hmm. you know, these huge cataclysms affecting life on mm-hmm. Earth in the past. And then in the modern day, someone like Graham Hancock. Um, mm-hmm. I know you don't do TV, but he recently had a, a new TV series mm-hmm. on Netflix called Ancient Apocalypse. Trust me, I heard about it. Yeah, I, didn't I mean, watch it, but I, a lot of people mentioned it to me. Yeah. The backlash was extraordinary. So the reason I mentioned these two <laughs> individuals is simply, you know, this uh, sort of really very trenchant sort of inbuilt resistance to the idea mm-hmm. of there being any kind of like catastrophe, whether localized mm-hmm. or global, you know, that, that befell mm-hmm. humanity at any point in the past. Yeah. You know, it's, yeah. it's really a thing. It's, it's like, it's a sort of psychological oh, yeah. block. Oh, it's the, the thing is, you, the, we're, I'm going to cycle back to a point we've covered in previous conversations. The mythology of progress, the, the religion of, of progress as the main religion of our world today. People believe in progress the way that, you know, the medieval saints believed in the wanderworking bones of St. Ethelwolf. Um, progress has to be omnipotent, has to be eternal. We can't go back. There cannot be decline, even though, of course, we've, we all know if we, if we bother to open our eyes and look around, we've been in decline for 50 years now. It's getting worse. If you accept the possibility of these, of these catastrophes, if you accept the possibility that there may have been high civilizations in the Ice Age period that were wiped out, leaving, you know, basically hitting the reset button and leaving small scattered bands of survivors, then what does that do to our dream of perpetual progress? What does that do to the fantasy that we're going to go out among the stars and you know, metastasize across the galaxy or whatever? Um, it's, it, it crushes the crazed human egotism that leads so many people these days to think of humanity as, you know, boldly striding across the galaxy. Um, first of all, it ain't going to happen. 
there are many good reasons why it ain't going to happen. But one of the problems with, um, with, with facing up to the real history of the planet, facing up to the impact of the end of the last ice age, facing up to the impact of, of impacts of actual, you know, what, what has happened when, um, meteors have hit the planet at various points, of facing up to ecological catastrophes that have happened, and so on, and so on, and so on, is that we're no longer the masters of the universe. We're no longer, you know, man, conqueror of nature. We're just another life form along for the ride. And anytime the planet burps, we're in deep trouble. <laughs> this myth of progress that you refer to, you know, this, uh -huh. this, this um, the only way is up kind of, you mm -hmm. know, arc. Um, of our, even mm -hmm. though, I mean, again, our, our history, even, you know, that relatively well understood history and well documented yeah. is peppered with downturns and catastrophes, exactly. but, there's, but there's still in, in, in the collective consciousness, the idea is that uh -huh. ways up. That myth is relevant here in another way, uh, which is thinking back again to into prehistory. There's a quote from uh, your book, uh, not from yourself, but you quote this before being discovered, the savage was first invented. And mm -hmm. I mentioned I mentioned mm -hmm. Gobekli Tepe, for example, and, the, and we're, mm -hmm. we're we're told that um, simple, dumb hunter gatherers uh, were, mm -hmm. were all that that's what consisted of humanity at that time. And, but, and uh, then yeah, we no, have some, exactly, yeah. And then we have Gobekli Tepe. As a result, clearly there was something going on that doesn't fit the stereotype. Um, and, and you get that all over the place. Um, look up what English heritage has to say about Stonehenge sometimes. They've, they've got this, this bizarre fantasy of these skin-clad, grunting savages building this extraordinary astronomical observatory and computer. <laughs> and, and, and watching the cognitive dissonance, because they can't deal with the possibility that um, you know, the, the people in the past are not stupid because they lived before us. Because the whole myth of progress is a myth of, it's the egotism of the present. It's the notion that we know the truth. We know what's real. We are smarter than everyone who has ever lived before us. I'm sure people thought that in, you know, the, the, the Ice Age civilizations just before the, the climate spun out of control and their cities went full fathom five. One thing that I was taken aback by and really intrigued with was that Thinking about the Grail legends, and you know, if you've mentioned mm -hmm. you know the Holy Grail, or the, the, the association is you've mentioned Knights Templar, you mentioned Freemasonry, for example. But in many people's minds, you know, certainly a few conversations I've had about this general topic since reading your book, it was like it's tied in with Christianity, mm -hmm. and, and mm -hmm. yet you're casting back to the megalithic period uh, in mm -hmm. the book, and well, that, you know that's of particular mm -hmm. interest to me. So that was very intriguing mm -hmm. for me that there was a connection mm -hmm. there. Mm -hmm. Well, well, there there are two there are two things that need to be that need to be noted here. The first is that the Christian gloss on the Grail legend came late. The early versions of the Grail legend are not Christian. Some of them aren't Christian at all. Some of them just have a very faint Christian gloss. It's only when you get to the later versions of the legend that have been rewritten by monkish chroniclers that have been heavily Catholicized. Uh, you replace the original Grail hero um, Percival, or before him Gawain, with Galahad. You know, there he goes, the Sermon on the Mount. Um, you know, a plaster saint, you know, dressed up in knight's armor. And, um, you know, his, his strength comes from purity, <laughs> which is not what the Grail legend used to be about, come on. But there, there's, there was quite this industry to domesticate and Christianize the Grail legend and, and shove it into this sort of devoutly 
Orthodox or Catholic and later also Anglican um, mode of Christianity, where it originally was something very, very different. So there's that aspect. Then there's the megalithic thing. And that's a very simple issue because you have all of these stories relating to the Grail and the Wasteland. What is the wasteland? It is a, it's some kind of catastrophe caused by, there are various theories as in, in the legends as to what, what caused it. But it caused total evil, ecological devastation across, um, you know, across the land of Logre, is what we now call England. Okay, my question was, okay, when's the last time this happened? Because this does happen, of course. As I mentioned, that kind of subsistence crisis, that kind of ecological devastation where there is no food, there is no grain, the trees have all been cut down. This may sound familiar to modern people, but when was the last time this happened? The last time that happened was the collapse of, the, of megalithic society. The last time that happened was, what would it be, 600, 6, 1600 BC, when the, the society that built Stonehenge ran up hard against the limits of, of you know, the, of the carrying capacity of Britain, and a lot of people starved, and there was, there was collapse, a, a massive social collapse, devastation, and a dark age. And that's the last time that happened before, in, in Western Europe, before the modern world. And yet, here we have the wasteland legends talking about just that, talking about that kind of ecological problem. Now, people will say, well, yeah, but they couldn't remember it from that long, and that's simply not true. It's been shown by folklorists, for example, that in the Western Isles of Scotland and in some of the islands off the coast of Australia, local people still remember what the topography was like when the sea level was 300 feet lower. People still remember what it was like before the seas rose. So that means, obviously, information has been passed on in folklore for a very, very long time, much longer than just from you know, 1600 B.C. So we definitely have, have a plausibility that, that, that what we're talking about in the Grail legend is a dimly remembered account of the collapse of the, of the culture that built Stonehenge and the, the subsistence crisis and the long era of, um, of, of dark, the long dark age era that followed it. And then after that, the recovery under the Celts. Because they were the, the Celts um, showed up as, as you know, the ecosystem was recovering and they also brought... Um, wheeled plows, and they brought a knowledge of how to use animal manure to fertilize their fields. So, you know, they had, a, they had an improved agricultural technology. They had a more resilient, more sustainable technology. So you have this, this notion of there's logres in the ancient days, and there's the curse that came, um, you know, when the grail was lost and, and, the, and, and the, waste, the era of the wasteland. And then we have, you know, of course, everyone says King Arthur because all kinds of old Celtic legends that it have piled onto um, the broad shoulders of that particular monarch. But so we actually have a way of looking back dimly toward the age that built Stonehenge. And that, that strikes me as really remarkable. Yeah, and of course, we still marvel at, uh, well, some of us do. Um, I'm not sure mm -hmm. how many visitors to Stonehenge think of it as anything other than just you know, a big old pile of rubble. But um, mm -hmm. some of us marvel at the um, achievements of mm -hmm. the, the, you know, the, our, our ancestors in the megalithic age. Mm -hmm. And we see all mm -hmm. over the world their handiwork. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. if you take a serious look at it, you think, you know, how were these stones quarried? How were they cut? How were they mm -hmm. raised? It's, it's all quite, and even all of those questions in themselves hint at some kind of uh, technology that has been lost, mm -hmm. or certainly ways of doing mm -hmm. things, you know. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. uh, 
there's a lot of you see the same thing applied to for example uh, you know the some of the pyramids in i know there's pyramids all over the world but the pyramids in egypt you know Mm -hmm. how was this done and Mm -hmm. serious attempts to replicate uh these construction methods have generally failed kind of you know in in the terms of the original builders you know it's like oh well we, we did this we made a pyramid or we lifted a stone a certain way yeah but you didn't you didn't quarry you know cut raise yeah. a stone block which is you know 100 tons or more or whatever that happens. Yeah, exactly a hundred ton granite block you're carving it out of the out of the rock when bronze tools are softer than granite how exactly was that done i wonder we don't know and then this hundred ton block was hauled um hundreds of miles and then hauled up onto the um onto the giza plateau and put into place way up there on the pyramid. <laughs> How did that happen? We don't know. That doesn't mean it was done by flying saucers or something. You know, we don't have to get into fantasy here, but we don't know how it was done. Um, there are various theories about how the how the, the stones of Stonehenge were lifted, but no one actually knows how it was done. Um, that's a little easier. I mean, the the stones are somewhat small, noticeably smaller. And the other advantage with Stonehenge is that stones of that general kind are found on Salisbury Plain. Not the blue stones, of course, which came from Wales, but the big sarsen stones. So, but still, how do they do it? We don't happen to know. You uh, mentioned the you mentioned the blue stones. That's very interesting. Mm-hmm. It connects to all of this tangentially, at least, mm-hmm. uh, or maybe more directly. Actually, you know, the blue stones, as you say, were brought from wales i guess if you look at the geography of mm-hmm. great, great britain uh, they may have been uh at the time you know the land would have been so fo- heavily forested that maybe the, the mm-hmm. easiest way to do it would be to put them on a boat uh oh, take, yeah. take them down the coast of wales and then maybe up the bristol channel and then over land mm-hmm. from there the point is mm-hmm. that the stones were brought and there's some evidence i think suggesting that they were part of another megalithic construction before they were oh, yeah. taken to the site at stonehenge but mm-hmm. they didn't mm-hmm. do that for fun. There was, no, exactly. There was some property. And, and, there was some property of that stone. The reason that they mm-hmm, wanted mm-hmm. it as part of their 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 construction. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And yeah, the fact that they choose this specific kind of stone from this specific place, which was apparently, as you say, apparently may have been part of at least one previous megalithic construction. Um, the claim in the old legends, Geoffrey of Monmouth, for example, claims that they had actually originally been set up in Ireland. And that's that's less improbable than it seems. There's been a lot of back and forth down through the millennia between um, South Wales and, and Ireland, of course. So one could very well imagine that the stones had been quarried in the Presley Mountains to go to Ireland, and then they were taken from Ireland, to, possibly as a result of a conquest, or we don't know what, were brought, as Geoffrey of Monmouth says, by, by Merlin, um, whoever hides behind that, that ancient name, um, and brought to... Um, brought to the plain where Stonehenge now stands. And they were brought in at one point and set up in one way. And then hundreds of years later, when the big Sarsen circle was built, they were rearranged, but they kept those stones because those stones were obviously very important. And thinking about the properties of stone, and this this could be a whole entire um, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. pod, podcast in itself, that has, you know, potentially has relevance here in terms of the the sort of uh, technology that you're talking about, mm-hmm. this, this lost technology, because a lot has been written about the properties of stone, uh, also you know electromagnetic, and uh, I'm thinking, yes. I'm, you know, I'm thinking of the you know the work of a uh, former guest of mine, Paul Devereux, for example, mm-hmm. and lots of people oh, yeah. reports 
having interesting, you know, an interesting mm -hmm. uh, resonance, shall I put, put mm -hmm. it that way? Mm -hmm. um, oh yeah. It within stone. So I mean, it's far from being the kind of just sort of like you know dead lump of rock, as it were. Yeah. It's, it seems to have in its own way. I mean, if we assume that everything in in the cosmos being imbued with consciousness at some level, but exactly, stone seems to have a life of its own in in, in, a, mm -hmm. in a strange way. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, I would say in many strange ways. Um, one of the things that I tend to point to here is some work that's been done on um, the the paramagnetic properties of stone. And for those for those who don't know the oddities, the, some of the odd corners of physics, uh, paramagnetism is a is an effect. It's found in in some some many stones and some material objects to a greater and lesser extent, which attracts and concentrates magnetic fields. It's not actually magnetic. I mean, you can't stick a piece of iron to it, but magnetic fields flow through it more easily. And a lot of the stone circles, the stones that are that are used in the, in stone circles in Britain and elsewhere, tend to be highly paramagnetic, and we don't know why. I mean, human beings are actually sensitive to magnetic fields to a much greater extent than than um, I think most people realize. But clearly, in ancient times, people were aware of what kinds of rock had certain kinds of effects, and so they concentrated on these highly paramagnetic stones to get electromagnetic results from that we we don't understand these days. We don't know what they were doing. I have a hypothesis, which I developed at some length in, in my book, um, Secret of the Temple, but that's a hypothesis. It's going to take a lot more experimentation and testing to, find, to, to even begin to develop some grasp of what the ancients knew. Yeah, and there's this idea of like connected with energetic properties of stone, the idea that um, it has a kind of memory Mm -hmm. I suppose this relates to psychometry, you know, this idea that mm -hmm. people have talked before. There's been some really good fiction written about it, but, you know, the idea <laughs> yeah. that um, an, an energetically charged event or, you know, positive mm -hmm. or negative or whatever mm -hmm. can somehow leave an imprint in mm -hmm. the environment with stone seeming to be a ready receptacle for this. Anything with anything with a strongly developed crystalline structure seems to do a very good job of that, and, and most of your stones, of course, are the, are the great example of that. But yeah, I mean, T.C. Lethbridge, who is a, a writer um, who I've read, I've studied very carefully, he had a lot to say about psychometry and about the connection between psychometry and, for example, ghost and phantom experiences. The extent to which, very often, what you're getting when you when somebody quote sees a ghost is they're literally getting a replay of this this strongly emotional emotionally charged event that has somehow been imprinted on physical objects in the place and it's that's lethbridge did some marvelous work on that some people have picked up and followed on and built on what he's done but there's an enormous amount of work remaining to be done if we can find i mean if we could find some more unprejudiced researchers and a little bit of funding a lot could be done um you were mentioning paul Devereux. he was heavily involved i know in the dragon project and they accomplished amazing things but they had to scramble to get any funding any support at all because of course the mainstream scientific establishment will not touch this kind of thing it violates their dogmas. It violates the religion of progress, of which they are the high priests. Yeah, for, for listeners who do do um, TV and movies, I'm going to recommend um, a, a drama. I can't remember when it was made. It, was, it would have been in the 70s, but it's called Stone Tape. And um, hmm. it's, it's about a group of researchers uh, that's uh, sort of, like, I guess you'd call them paranormal researchers, but, you know, scientists mm -hmm. among them. It was that rare thing, you know, scientists interested in the paranormal. 
Um, in the 70s, there were a bunch of them. They got squashed in the following <laughs> decade. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, no, but they, they're at this... Um, this old building, I can't remember, it was a house or what, I can't remember what the, the use mm-hmm. of the building was previously, but, and they're investigating these kind of spectral occurrences and they indeed mm-hmm. come to the conclusion that there's been some past traumatic event that has mm-hmm. somehow been mm-hmm. embedded in the stone of the building. Mm-hmm. And it's called the stone mm-hmm. tape because it replays and people keep having yeah. these uh, experiences, these visions and mm-hmm. apparitions mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, not just visual, but, you know, kind of, how can I put it? You know, when you have a perception that's that mm-hmm. is beyond your five senses, a kind of a oh, feeling, yeah. you know, they're, they're yeah. having these yeah. experiences it's, in this building. Yeah. yeah, it's not just visual. There's a very, there very often there's a very strong emotional component and a very mm-hmm. strong component mm-hmm. of meaning. And of course, that there again, you're running into the prejudices of the main, of mainstream science because, you know, no, 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 meaning can't exist in the universe. Meaning is only what we say it is. <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> Well, you mentioned uh, we talked about you know the agriculture, and that was an interesting mm-hmm. uh, take that you put on it there that I've not really heard uh, very much at all. Was that agriculture might have been a, a sort of a necessity because mm-hmm. it's, it's sometimes equated almost with like the fall of man, oh, you know, like the, the, the kind mm-hmm. of the beginning of civilization, which oh, had yeah. embedded in it the end of civilization, you know, in mm-hmm. some way. So. One of the problems we face because our, you know, the, the, the cultures of Western Europe and the European diaspora are, are heavily imbued with Christianity. And so any time we start telling a story, it usually turns into something out of the Bible. You cannot get any, it, or certainly it's very hard to get anyone to start saying in the beginning without spilling, you know, ending up going into Genesis. We have the Big Bang Theory. Our physicists are convinced there was a Big Bang. What is that other than a secularized version of God said, let there be light? <laughs> you know, it's, it, it, and this is true of every culture. You know, every culture has its narratives, and when it reaches the point that it, it gets tired of the religious form of those, it launches its age of reason, all of its rationalist narratives are the religious narratives with serial numbers filed off. And so, yeah, everyone's running around looking for the fall. They want to know who bit what apple to cause everything that's wrong in the world. Um, but if we look at what happened at the end of the last ice age, if we look at the traumatic climatic shifts, I mean, until, what was it, about 6,400 BC, the Sahara was, the Sahara was in a desert. It was savanna, lions and gazelles, elephants wandered through the Sahara. It was grassland with trees in the forest because the monsoons came sweeping in every year. Then those stopped. Previously, they'd stopped at points further north. And so you had large areas that had been able to support the kind of complex mixed ecology that that the human beings were. You know, there really isn't a term for this because we say hunter-gatherers and then we say farmers. But in fact, a lot of, quote, hunter-gatherers, unquote, actually tend and work with the ecosystems that support them. You know, they will gather nuts and then some of the nuts will go out and plant in, in likely places, so they have more nut trees a few years later. Or, um, you know, or they will do things to increase the carrying capacity for game animals. Or here in, in the East Coast, in the, in the woodlands of eastern North America, back before European settlement, you would plant a garden. And then you would have somebody sitting there with bow and arrow in some out of... Because you know, as soon as you plant a garden, the deer are going to try to come and munch it. You shoot the deer. You just added venison to your diet, and you actually designed the garden to attract the deer, and it becomes this, this elegant little um, way of managing an ecosystem to maximize human food production. There was a lot of that going on all over the world. It was not just people 
you know, doing this sort of simplistic notion of hunting, hunting and gathering. People were smarter than that. And so, but those broke down. We had these cataclysmic global droughts over much of the world, and the trees died, and the grass died, and the, the rivers stopped flowing. And you know what happened to the to the Sahara? What happened to um, the the Arabian Peninsula, which also used to be um, grassland with trees, scattered trees like like the East African savanna? Um, and so people had people either died, and a lot of them I'm sure did. Or they fled to places that still had water, like the, the Valley of the Nile River. Or they figured out ways to survive based on whatever they could do. And in a lot of places, that amounted to, here is a grass that will still grow. Here is a grass that has edible seeds that will still grow. It's our only hope. It's that or, or lay down and die. And that had a range of cascading problems as a result, you know, of going from a complex, rich, multi-level diet to eating grain. It's not going to be good for your health. It's not going to be. There, there are other problems because, of course, grain is storable. Then you have the possibility of building cities. You have the possibility of greatly increased hierarchy. We have civilization in the modern sense. You know, and all of this unfolds from scattered bands, scattered groups of survivors huddled around um, rapidly drying um, stream beds going, okay, is there anything we can do or can we just, do we just need to give up and die? And they found something. You know, the world. sometimes the world works that way. That concludes part one of our interview. Part two will be available soon in the subscribers area at LegalizeFreedom.com. LegalizeFreedom.com